Welcome to another episode of Clock Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. I'm David Airdrie, Executive Director. I'm Jamil Abdul-Rahman, hematologist from Toronto General Hospital. We're here to provide you with updates on diagnosis and management of thrombosis, featuring interviews with authors of recent research publications and highlights of education programs from Thrombosis Canada. Thank you for joining us for this episode. In this episode, we'll be discussing a recent publication from the British Medical Journal entitled Effectiveness of Therapeutic Heparin versus Prophylactic Heparin on Death, Mechanical Ventilation, or Intensive Care Unit Admission in Moderately Ill Patients with COVID-19 Admitted to Hospital, Rapid Randomized Clinical Trial, and co-authored by an international team on behalf of the Rapid Trial Investigators. We're joined today by the lead author, Dr. Michelle Schulzberg. Dr. Schulzberg received her MDCM and residency training in internal medicine at McGill University, completed additional postgraduate training in hematology at the University of Toronto, and a research hemostasis fellowship in Toronto and internationally. Dr. Schulzberg has a Master's of Science from the University of Toronto in clinical epidemiology and healthcare research, and was awarded the Claire Bombardier Award for career, promises, sorry, career promise as a scientist. She is a clinician investigator with a focus on coagulation, the division head of hematology oncology, and the medical director of the coagulation laboratory at St. Michael's Hospital. She is also the director of the hematology oncology clinical research group and co-director of the hematology immunology translational research theme of the Likashing Knowledge Institute. Dr. Schulzberg is the associate editor for illustrated materials at research and practice in thrombosis and hemostasis. Currently, she's involved in the study of prediction tools for perioperative and traumatic bleeding, the intersection of women's health and bleeding disorders, treatment for iron deficiency anemia, new treatment for immune thrombocytopenia, and the management of COVID-19 coagulopathy. Thank you for participating in our podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. Well, uh, considering your your busy workload, we really do appreciate the time. Um, and, um, you know, we start off with a couple of, of uh, standard questions. And first off, want to ask you, why did you and your colleagues feel there was a need for this study? Thanks for the question. Um, it's funny. When I think back to the beginning of the pandemic, it feels like a lifetime ago. It wasn't sure that does. long ago. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I remember um, in the very early days, very early 2020, as it was becoming clear that um, the virus was moving across the world and that uh, people were dying and that there seemed to be an increased risk of thrombosis and that patients who had elevated D-dimer levels um, seemed to be at higher risk of uh, critical illness and death. Um, it became clear that this viral pandemic was going to be far more relevant for the hematologist than I think any one of us had originally thought. Um, so in those early days uh, on Twitter, we were um, very quickly receiving information from around the world, starting, of course, um, from reports in Wuhan, China. and many individuals around the world uh, hypothesized that there may be an opportunity to uh, alter the course of this disease with the provision of anticoagulation. And so um, 
I think based on that early preliminary evidence, myself and many colleagues uh, thought that there may be value, particularly um, from reports from Wuhan, China, indicating that in patients who had been provided with heparin-based thrombotic prophylaxis, that their risk of death was lower. So it was um, a scary uh, but inspiring time Um I think for us all. Absolutely. And um, so could you give our listeners a brief overview of the study and its findings? Sure. Um, So this is a um, randomized control trial, one-to-one of therapeutic dose heparin anticoagulation, either unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin compared to uh, strictly prophylactic dosing of those same heparins. Um, Patients who were admitted to hospital uh, for COVID-19, so not uh, incidental diagnoses of COVID-19, you know, in patients who had been admitted for other purposes, um, uh, patients were considered for inclusion in the study. Um, We excluded uh, patients with clear contraindication uh, to anticoagulation, for example, based on bleeding risk. And we also excluded patients with an absolute indication for therapeutic anticoagulation. Um, And so patients were also uh, included in the trial if they had evidence of what we now call COVID coagulopathy which is uh, marked by an increase in the D-dimer level. And so patients who are admitted to hospital, not to the ICU, so patients requiring ward level of care with a positive D-dimer defined as either a D-dimer above the upper limit of normal or um, a D-dimer greater than or equal to two times the upper limit of normal. For those who had uh, simply a positive D-dimer, They also had to have the presence of hypoxia that we defined as an oxygen saturation of less than or equal to 93%. So this really was a trial of therapeutic versus prophylactic heparin uh, in patients requiring ward-level care uh, for COVID-19. Unfortunately, this was not a trial that included pregnant patients. Terrific. Thank you. Can you tell tell us a bit about the findings, what what your study found? Yes, absolutely. Um, And so the primary outcome of the trial was a composite. And so we looked at um, the composite outcome of death, uh, mechanical ventilation, whether it be invasive or non-invasive or ICU admission. And so we compared that, uh, the occurrence of of that composite in those who were receiving therapeutic versus prophylactic heparin. Um, and while there was a numerical reduction in the primary composite outcome, it was not statistically significant. However, uh, the odds of all-cause death was significantly reduced by 78% in those who received therapeutic heparin. And there was a very low odds of major bleeding. Perfect. So the study was designed as a pragmatic trial. Can you tell us a bit about what that means in general and in regards to this trial and why you decided on this study design? Sure. Um, so pragmatic, I guess, just means uh, easy, easier to do, easier to execute, um, and which was incredibly important in the middle of the pandemic, right? We could not um, add more uh, to the shoulders of healthcare workers and patients during this very difficult time. 
And so um, it was pragmatic in so far that it was simple. It was straightforward. We were repurposing a drug that was already available. Um, we were open-minded about the different types of heparins that could be used. We didn't want to be overly strict. We wanted people to be able to use whatever heparin they had at their hospital, whatever the standard care uh, you know, type of heparin that was used at that hospital could be used for this trial. Um, that said, the one thing that we were very strict about was um, the uh, dosing of the prophylactic arm. And so we were strict in really adhering to the best available evidence um, and not providing intermediate doses of heparin so as not to make the two arms of the trial um, excessively similar, uh, meaning to maximize the chances of us um, picking up an effect if there was one present. Okay. So you mentioned that some studies would, sorry, some centers would use low molecular heparin, other centers would use unfractionate heparin. Um, it sounds like that was done for pragmatic reasons based on what's available to centers. Is there, so is there a preferred uh, heparin agent that you would recommend for today, uh, low molecular heparin versus unfractionate heparin? Yeah, great question. Um, so I should actually lead with the words uh, low molecular weight heparin over unfractionated heparin as unfractionated heparin uh, binds non-specifically to a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, rendering it potentially uh, less um, efficacious as an anticoagulant. And so really low molecular weight heparins are preferred. Um, I should also mention, just from a pragmatic perspective, that this is an open-label trial. So, of course, um, from a methodological perspective, uh, you know, or from a rigor perspective, it would be great for this to have been a blinded trial, but that would not have been pragmatic nor feasible in the middle of the pandemic when um, it was already uh, really hard just to manage regular clinical care and where uh, you know, PPE was uh, very limited at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And you mentioned with the primary composite outcome, so uh, death, invasive medical, mechanical ventilation, non-invasive mechanical ventilation, admission to the ICU, um, there was no statistical difference uh, and no statistical difference with the VTE, but there was significantly less death in the therapeutic heparin group. Why do you think that was? That's the million dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the million dollar question. So, I mean, I think that what we saw and what other trials in this space uh, have, have also identified is that there does seem to be a benefit with therapeutic dose heparins, um, that family of drugs. And that benefit does not seem to extend to non-heparin anticoagulants, so like the direct oral anticoagulants, based on what we know thus far. Um, and so when you're designing a clinical trial, and especially at a time where you don't even fully understand the disease, it's before any treatments were available. Um, and, and like my co-principal investigator, Peter Uni always said, he said, this is at the time before penicillin. Like we didn't even know what we were treating. And so um, we developed a primary composite outcome that included a bunch of relevant clinical outcomes, both for the individual patient, but also for the healthcare system. You know, thinking about, you know, resource constraints with regards to bed availability, et cetera. So we developed this sort of catch-all composite outcome, you know, and we didn't expect, you know, based on historical data, conducted in patients uh, who'd received heparin that, you know, 
for example, prophylactic heparin doesn't seem to translate into a mortality difference in many other settings. And so we didn't expect to see such a mortality difference. Now, when you look at all of the secondary outcomes, which are all of the individual components of the primary composite outcome, plus, you know, venous events and arterial events, everything is numerically going in the direction of suggesting benefit with therapeutic heparin. Death is the one where it completely uh, becomes, uh, you know, sort of abundantly clear that there is a benefit uh, to therapeutic heparin. Why this may be, um, it's possible that um, heparin with, you know, its anticoagulant effects, its uh, anti-inflammatory effects, its uh, benefit in the management of acute lung injury that has been demonstrated in previous animal models, um, that it decreases the risk um, of, you know, progressive respiratory failure. And, you know, microvascular thromboses may be part of that process. Um, and so that's the hypothesis. Um, we don't know that for certain. Um, but it really does seem that, you know, amongst this trial and other trials that um, therapeutic dose heparin is of benefit and the risk of using it is incredibly low in this patient population, the non-critically ill patient population. Perfect. Um, so the COVID patients we see hospitalized today might be different from those included in the study. So at least in Canada, most of people are vaccinated. Uh, we have different variants of COVID now. The non-anticoagulant treatment may be different now compared to when the study was first conducted. So should these changes put any limitations on, on our interpretations of the findings? Right. Um, so, so absolutely right. So <laughs> It's remarkable to live in a time where data from a year and a half ago or a year ago may not necessarily be relevant to the same disease that we are treating today. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a limitation of, of the speed at which this virus mutates and also a wonderful limitation of therapeutics being very rapidly developed um, for, for COVID-19, both from a preventative and therapeutic perspective. Um, so I don't think that anyone knows the degree of benefit that a patient would experience today with therapeutic heparin-based anticoagulation if they were admitted to hospital and were not critically ill compared to a year and a half ago. Um, I think what is very reassuring is you know, the uniformly low risk of major bleeding. And um, if my loved one was admitted to hospital today, um, would I want them to receive therapeutic heparin if they were not critically ill? Um, the answer is yes, I would. I'd be particularly inclined if they had a positive D-dimer value. Um, so, so I don't, but I don't think that anyone, um, knows, you know, specifically how to quantify that benefit um, when you apply it to today's COVID. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's challenging. Yeah. Okay. And in the uh, discussion paper, you talk a bit about the limitations of the open label trial, possibility of performance bias and detection bias. Could you tell us a bit about that? For sure. Um, and so as with any trial conducted in COVID-19, they are all 
open label, or I should say, I'm not aware of any COVID-19 related clinical trial that is not open label. Um, and so with that comes the potential risk for systematic error bias. And um, particularly when we are looking at outcomes that um, require a change in clinician behavior um, that may be particularly problematic, meaning um, if the physician, the treating physician is aware that a given patient is already on therapeutic heparin and the patient develops progressively, you know, worsening uh, respiratory uh, issues, they are likely going to feel less inclined to consider a pulmonary, pulmonary embolism on the differential diagnosis and therefore may be less inclined to scan the patient versus the opposite, which is the patient who's on the prophylactic arm. So you therefore have the opportunity for bias where you have more patients who could potentially just be scanned and therefore they could have more um, thrombotic events detected in the prophylactic arm just based on the change in physician behavior uh, with the awareness of, um, you know, what treatment arm the patient had been randomized to. And so, so that's particularly relevant for outcomes like thrombosis. It's also as equally relevant for outcomes like bleeding. Um, so in the same way, uh, you may be more inclined to consider that, that the patient is bleeding, um, you know, when they're on therapeutic heparin compared to them not being on therapeutic heparin. Um, where performance uh, bias uh, and detection bias really is not problematic is for very objective outcomes. Um, so things like death, things like, you know, especially invasive mechanical ventilation, right? Um, there are clear documents that, um, uh, you know, substantiate, um, you know, the presence of these outcomes. Um, and additionally, in our trial, what we uh, did to further mitigate the risk of these biases is that we had um, uh, external and independent adjudication of all primary and secondary events, as you well know, Jamil, because you were one of those external adjudicators. And so what that meant is that you and another expert um, evaluated all of the source documents, and those documents were all um, redacted. So you didn't know which arm the patient fell into, and you reviewed the source documents to tell us if you agreed or did not agree with the site's determination of the presence or absence of a given outcome. And so um, that is a way to really minimize the risk of these biases. And so we were very careful with that. Another thing that was really, um, I think, fantastic that we were able to do with your help was we also adjudicated the cause of death, um, which, which I think is, is unique um, and uh, I think helpful when what we found is that most patients died of um, hypoxic respiratory failure. Perfect. Okay, thank you. So you had alluded to a few other clinical trials looking at anticoagulation in COVID patients, uh, such as the ATT&CK trial, ACTIVE4A, uh, REMAP. How should we put the findings from all these studies together? What, what are the takeaway points? Um, I think it's so important uh, now more than ever um, to have multiple trials using different types of methods, um, with different investigators in different geographic parts of the world, 
um, with different funding sources that are evaluating the same types of therapies. Um, and the fact that um, the multi-platform trial of ATT&CK, Active4A, and MAP-CAP, as well as the findings of HEP-COVID, um, another trial in the space, um, and our trial, all pointing in the same direction, all suggesting benefit of therapeutic heparin uh, for patients who are not critically ill admitted to hospital for COVID. Um, this is really reassuring for, you know, really the most responsible physician who's managing these patients um, and also for the patients, right? And for us too as trialists, because, um, you know, we're all moving very quickly conducting these trials and we really want to feel as confident as we possibly can that, you know, our findings are reproducible um, in different settings. And, and we were all able to do that. So I think it's critical to consider the evidence that comes from RAPID with the evidence that comes from these other trials. And, um, you know, all of the guideline efforts uh, to date take into consideration the results of all of these trials. And now they're increasing um, uh, international and national uh, guidelines that suggest therapeutic heparin for um, patients admitted to hospital who are not critically ill with COVID-19. You know, our trial is certainly limited. We were ultimately underpowered. Um, and so our results must be taken into consideration with the findings of others. Thank you. Well, it's uh, just amazing work in such a short period of time, uh, your trial and, and the others as well. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add before, uh, before we finish today? I suppose um, the one thing that I would say is that um, being part of this trial with wonderful international colleagues and really courageous um, and generous patients around the world has been, um, uh, you know, such a privilege. Um, and, uh, it was, it was just an incredible experience for me. Um, and one that I could not have done without my colleagues, especially my co-principal investigators, uh, Mary Cushman and Peter Uni, um, and, and everyone who participated in the trial, uh, you know, most importantly, the patients. So I hope never again uh, to have to uh, design and uh, conduct and analyze a trial so quickly or sort of feeling that pressure the way that we all did. I, I hope never to have to feel that again. Um, but uh, what an experience and one that I'll, I'll take with me forever. Wonderful. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, we really appreciate it and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you again. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Clot Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions on the podcast. If you have any recommendations for future podcasts, please send them to us at info at thrombosiscanada.ca. Please subscribe so that you are notified about the release of new episodes. And don't forget to check out our website for education programs, clinical tools, and guides. Also, please consider donating to Thrombosis Canada to support our ongoing efforts to reduce morbidity and mortality due to thrombosis. Thank you and have a good day.